I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. My guest today was an individual I grew up with in Valsburg, part of Newark, New Jersey. Joe Przicki worked his way through high schools into the University of Delaware, captain of a nationally ranked championship football team, the first white coach to be the head coach of an all-black school, Delaware State. In fact, there's a book written about it. He then went to James Madison, got out of coaching, and became a vice chairman at MBNA, credit card company. Joe is an incredible leader. His relationship building skills are elite, and he's the type of person that if you have as a friend, will do anything for you. We welcome Joe Przicki. Welcome, friends. Our guest today is an individual I've known since I was about eight years old. Used to come to my house and we'd play electronic football. <laughs> we grew up in an area of Valsburg, New Jersey, and it was, uh, I don't know, Joe, how would you describe the neighborhood? It was an education. Uh, that's how I'd describe it. <laughs> right? it, it was an education in a lot of ways, uh, you know, survival, uh, instinct seeing people do things the right way and the wrong way and having to make tough decisions. I agree, Jed. And it was a melting pot. You know, we really had the Irish neighborhoods, the Italian neighborhoods, you go down South End, South End, Germany, you had Speedway, that was old black neighborhoods. So you were in Newark, you're dealing with people from all different backgrounds all of the time. And I, I think that was as good preparation for anybody. As I look at your career, I don't think anybody's worked as hard to earn their way as you have. I mean, uh, you end up going to Valesburg High School. You go from Valesburg to Valley, then the Borden, uh, Bordentown Military, and then down to Delaware. Join your brother and have an unbelievable career, captain of the team, you know, nationally ranked team, All-American. Uh, and then you get into coaching. And you start at Kearney High School. <laughs> How did you ever get that job at Kearney? First of all, I got into coaching because I idolized Tubby Raymond, my college coach, who's in everybody's Hall of Fame. He was incredibly motivating. And somewhere around my sophomore, junior year, I knew I wanted to be a coach. And it was Tubby who got me most of my jobs. Tub, when I got out of school, uh, a player of ours, Ralph Borges, his dad was the head coach at Kearney High School. Okay. And Tub called me in and said, hey, there's a job up there with Ralph's dad. You should go take it. And after a year, I will call you and I want to get you a head high, uh, high school coaching job in Delaware. And I said, Coach, you know, I'm, I'm only 23 years old. I don't even know how to line you guys up. He said, don't worry. I can help you with all that. You have the temperament disposition to be a coach. And at 24 years of age, I wound up being a head football coach at a tiny little school, Woodbridge High School in Bridgeville, Delaware. And then, as you know, went out to Cesar Rodney High School. We were the first team in the history of downstate to win the state championship and go 12 and 0 and uh, God bless Tubby he then said come back and coach for me at the University of Delaware I mean I can remember you know we had lost touch 
And then all of a sudden I saw you at the Cesar Rodney game when you guys won the national, when you won the state championship. And there was, uh, I'm trying to remember what player, either on your team or the team you were playing against, that had someone on it that I was looking at when I was at UCLA. You were looking at two players. Uh, Chuck Hunter was a first-team All-American, parade All-American from St. Mark's High School, right. the, two-time, the two-time state champion who we defeated. We had a young man named Tony Kelsey who eventually went to Michigan. Okay. So Chuck Hunter, I believe, might have gone to Ohio State, and our guy Tony Kelsey went to Michigan. I turned around on the on the bench, and I look and see my old uh, electronic football partner <laughs> looking over my shoulder. That was that was quite a surprise. Well, and then you go back to Delaware as an assistant coach, and then you have this opportunity to become the first white coach to go to an all-black school and be their head coach. And, and obviously books and movie, all sorts of stuff has happened based on the success you had there. Talk about what that was like. You know, I went to Delaware and uh, we won a national championship in 79 and we played for one in 78. So I was a part of a great era where we we were really productive. And I didn't like being an assistant coach, to be honest with you. I was thankful to be back in Delaware, but I loved my six years as a head football coach. So Delaware State, I had a, a black athletic director named Nelson Townsend, who became one of the most influential mentors of my life. And he called and said, I want to talk to you about the head coaching job at Delaware State. Now, Delaware State had just lost a football game, 105 nothing, to Portland State and Neil Lomax. And they'd had three winning seasons in 25 years. And Nelson was facing a program in total decay. Nobody came to the games. Nobody in the community cared about Delaware State. And the first thing I confirmed with was, uh, you know, I'm a white coach. In the 100-year history of black college football, we're talking about 120 colleges and universities that have played over 100 years. There'd never been a white football coach at one of these institutions. And I said, what are the odds that, you know, I'd even have this opportunity with you? And he went down his checklist of things that he wanted to solve for. And he said, Joe, you check all the boxes. If you're the best candidate, I promise you, I'll hire you. But you have to demonstrate that you're the best candidate. So I was really excited about the opportunity. I really didn't see the color piece being that big an obstacle. And let me share it because I talked to their board about it. I was born and raised in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, I went to Valesburg until my senior year. I played in the city league. I started on the basketball team my junior year. Four of our six opponents were all black schools. And in the summer league that I played with in Valesburg, all of the inner city kids played. So I had played with was around African-American kids my whole time growing up. And we had at Valesburg, we were integrated as well. So I didn't see this as a big obstacle until I got hired. Then you know, all hell broke loose. Uh, and, I, and I realized I was confronted with, you know, a uh, kind of the feelings of an entire community uh, that they thought, felt were being pushed aside and opportunity was being denied to an African-American coach in one of these coveted positions on campus. And, and that's really when the whole adjustment uh, came. But I've always defended Nelson's uh, and admired Nelson's selection because he promised me, if you check all the boxes, I'm going to hire you. And uh, and he did. And it became a really difficult time for both of us from 1980 to 1985. I mean, you had success. So how did you get people to buy into the program? 
how'd you get your, was it a problem? Let's talk about the different stakeholders. You had your players, you had administrators, you had alumni. So talk about how you went about each one of those groups, you know, building alliances. Right. So what I did, I kind of learned on the job, but, but here's one of the things that I learned from Nelson Townsend, my AD. When we first you know, got there, it was the two of us kind of against all of those factions you just mentioned, because the community, the alums, a certain amount of the board were against this whole, thought this was a bad idea. And so we were kind of linked to one another and had to have kind of a strategy for you know, moving forward, how we were going to uh, be successful. And, you know, uh, for me, the first thing I knew I had to do was have a rapport with my players. And so I had a meeting. The first meeting I had, uh, the day I was hired, uh, there was a press conference that turned into a, a, a riot on campus, 500 students picketed and protested. I had to leave campus. There was a death threat called in to the Delaware State News uh, about my hiring. Uh, the state police wouldn't allow me to come back on campus for four days. So in the beginning, it was, I was just thinking, is this the worst decision I'd ever made? And Nelson sat me down and said, Joe, we're not letting a bunch of 18-year-olds tell us how to run our program. Now, we laid out what we want to do, and we laid out a timetable. And I'm behind you, but we're going to put a lot of this aside. Since no one showed up to my first meeting, Nelson and I penned a letter together to all the players and said, you're to be at the next meeting or you'll lose your scholarship. And if coach has to play with 35 freshmen, that's what we're going to do. So the first meeting, uh, all of the players showed up. Now, 17 quit the first day uh, that I was there. So they weren't there. But everybody else who was on scholarship showed up. And I got them in a room. I didn't have a playbook. Uh, I didn't have a bunch of rules. I just said, look, I've got one rule. I'll never lie or misrepresent myself to you. And I'm asking you to never lie or misrepresent yourself to me. Because if we're straight up with one another, we may disagree on a lot of things, but we'll trust one another. And if we trust one another, we'll communicate. And if we communicate, there's nothing that we can't do. And I believe I began to form a bond with players. But there was one thing that I had to do that Nelson instructed me to do. And uh, I shared with him, I said, Nelson, my whole background, I really don't have to worry about my rapport with black athletes. I think I have that. And he said, Joe, I chose you because you're so empathetic. I knew you would treat our young men the right way. But let me tell you something. When you leave these, I had 97 black players, three white players. He said, when you leave these young men, you go back to your white family in your all white community. You talk to your white relatives and your white friends. You, yeah, you can empathize with these young people, but you have no idea what they go through. You're going to sit down with them and really get to know them. I learned something very important when you're trying to build trust in an organization. You really have to get to know people. You have to take, really take time to sit down and understand where they're from. What, what makes, what, what do they, uh, what do they want to do in life? What are their goals and ambitions? And I, I sat down and I, I really found out a side of the young men I was coaching that I never even realized yet. Now, you got to remember, this is 40 years ago. So this was growing up in the 1980s in America, being young and black. And Calvin Mason was one of the big guys on my team, a great football player, and he, he didn't want to play for me. He was one of the guys that protested 
and eventually stayed. And I sat down with him one day and we had a real heart to heart. And he said, coach, you know, I didn't want you as my coach. And I said, yeah, I understand. But why? I'm trying to understand why, Calvin, I want to get to know you a little bit better. He said, coach, I'm a country kid from Florida. In my high school, the principal is white. Superintendent of schools is white. The mayor of my town is white. The governor of my state is white. The president's white. Santa Claus is white and Jesus Christ are white. He said, coach, the world I live in, I never get to see black leaders. I never get to see people in the community I can aspire to be. So I wanted to go to an all black school because I want to be around men who are role models for me. And, you know, that day I just got an education and some of the things Jed, that these young men shared that they had to deal with in society that I just took for granted uh, really obstacles. The, the, the level of, you know, 40 years ago, this kind of, you know, we talk about systemic racism. It was a way of being treated that they could share with me little things I'd never think of. You know, you said coaching in high school, you know, you have the prom theme. The prom theme, 80% of the school is white. So the prom theme is always <laughs> decided by those kids. Those are little things. He had a brother who went to an Ivy League school and felt this, what he felt was discrimination every day because he'd go in the classes and people would think he was there as a token. So these were little things that I'd never thought about in my lifetime. The more I opened myself up to these young men, the more I formed a bond with them and I formed a bond that allowed them to trust me. And we built a program that we went from two wins to four wins to seven wins to eight wins to a program that I left to Bill Colick, one of my dear friends, African-American coach took over. He won five MEAC titles in a row. And for 14 years, Delaware State was ranked in the top 25 one double eight for 14 years. So we built something that really lasted, but I think it's because we built it on this kind of foundation of trust and trust isn't easy. You know, trust has to be earned. And so that was, that was, you know, if, when I look back, thanks to Nelson's guidance kind of helped me figure how to navigate this. I was able to build trust with my players. I think this trust piece that you mentioned, just think about the Super Bowl coming up and the evolution of Tom Brady with uh, B.A. and how in the beginning it looked like it was a disaster. And now they've gone from where they look like they were feuding to now they believe in one another. So the point you just mentioned about you know, getting people to believe in you, it, it's got to work both ways. It has to work both ways. And boy, you got to be really sincere when you're doing it. I, I've always said, especially you know, being around a whole lot of young black kids recruiting, I recruited a lot of the inner cities up and down the East Coast. These guys can see through you when you're phony or when you're you're not authentic. They can see through it. If you're going to build trust, you really got to strip that away and, and have that heart to heart. I do this thing when I was in corporate life. Uh, I would sit down with all of my executives. I had 11 executives when I was COO of, of Barclays Bank, a large, large international bank. And I'd have them do this personal history exercise where they would go through their personal history from as far back as they could remember and take me to today, because I wanted to understand everything about them. I understand what, what makes you tick? Where do you come from? I think they really appreciated that I wanted to get to know everything about them. I think once again, once we built on that executive team, that kind of trust, 
we could disagree with one another. We, we could have conflict, knowing at the end of the day, we all trusted one another. And Jed, I think you're 100% right. I think it, at that level, the NFL guys are, are seeing more and more how critical that is in terms of building true teams. You, you have to have that. And, uh, and if you do, I think the whole color piece fades away. I, I think it, it, it dissolves for me. It dissolved for me once uh, my players knew I greatly cared about them. We could trust one another. I would always have their best interests at heart. You know, then I think anything's possible. We proved that. We became a, a powerhouse in 1AA football. Well, you then had the opportunity to go on to James Madison and you know, started to build a program, had one tremendous season, then had the devastation of a player you know, dying, coming and falling off a truck, which really kind of, I think, affected the morale of your team. It was one of the most difficult things they ever had to go through as a, as a coach. And it destroyed a full season. I mean, our, our young men were devastated because it happened right at the end of preseason. And we were coming back from a preseason practice. And a young man named Doug West, who was probably our second best football player behind Charles Haley, who we all know was a pretty good football player at a JMU. Doug was an All-American. He was a wrestler. He was our heart of our defense, nose tackling. Guys were coming back from morning practice. He was sitting on the back of a pickup truck. They hit a, a bump in the road. He went over. And the worst part was our, our players were all there. So uh, this was a very difficult scene to look at. You know, they all witnessed that. So they had this trauma, and we had to spend, you know, weeks. We, we lost our, our first three games. We, a lot of our players just wouldn't play. They're still traumatized by the incident. But uh, – you know, by our third year in 87, we were the number seven ranked team in the country. You know, we made the NCAA Plus for the first time in history. So we did we did uh, make some progress. But like all coaches, we plateaued. And you know, Jed, you've been in the business when you when you have early success and you're going to be nine and two every year nationally ranked, and then you plateau and have six wins a year, uh, it, it doesn't go well. So I, I left coaching. I had opportunities to stay, but I, I, you were you were uh, one of the people in my background who helped me and guided me during that period. And let me tell you something. When you go through those valleys, you never forget who was there to kind of help lead you out. And I've always appreciated your hand that you extended to me and helped pulled me back into uh, a really a tremendously successful career as a banker. Who would have thought? Well, hey, look, you and I were going through it at the same time. I had been you know, coaching in college in the NFL and got let go. I was shocked with the Steelers and, and I was involved in some personal things as well. And you came up to, and we were looking at opportunities together. I had my uh, studio apartment. I mean, those were, when you talk about the hard times of trying to get a job, and you don't have a job and you're changing careers. And you met that guy in Walter Clark. Donnelly was kind of nuts who I went to work for and, and, uh, yeah. So we both kind of branched out and went different, went separate ways and have had fun and success in just because of our background in coaching and what it taught us to do. Like you, like you, I get a lot of opportunities to speak. And oftentimes this, it, it is, how did you go from being a college coach at 44 to wind up becoming an industry executive, a COO and vice chairman? of a, a large international, but how in the world do you make that transition? And 
one of the things I did learn back then when you were working with me was the first thing I had to do is identify transferable skills. Right. What is that you do over here? And I can remember I had this interview at MBNA America where I eventually got hired and I was prepared uh, based on my work that I did with you guys because I had my transferable skills listed very clearly. And one of the my transferable skills was I'm a great salesman. I can sell anything. They, well, how do you know you can? Because I have to go in the living room of every young kid in Virginia and convince that young man to go to JMU, not Richmond, UVA, Virginia Tech. You know that. You're one of the greatest recruiters to ever be in a college game. So I knew sales was a skill. And the organization I interviewed with really picked up on that because they'd opened a new segment called the college and universities. And the bank was going to cater to affinity credit cards to colleges and universities and said, boy, you would be a great fit for this. And so uh, they put me in that and I was, they, I took our old coaching skills and applied them again. I had the sales ability, but you know, at coaching, we would work Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night. We always worked nights. So I would just tell my wife, Sharon, I, I'm working Sunday night, Monday night, and Tuesday night. And everybody else would go home but not me. I would do make my West Coast calls in the evening. So you found a way to take those transferable skills and apply them to a new environment and you could be successful just the way you've get into, you've gotten to the top of your profession. You've done it by taking the habits and skills you had and applying them into the new environment. There's no question that I remember we had that AVA, that word adjective checklist and your strong suit came sociability in terms of really being able to build incredible relationships and really important. Just as you mentioned, that translates right over to sales. It translates into having meaningful relationships inside and outside the organization. That's something I can remember from when you were young, how you were able to just build relationships, as you talked about, with all these different types of people. That really, you know, it's having taken personal inventory over a long period of time. No, that really was one of the things that I did best. And I realized that, you know, I've got to rely on that. Uh, there are certain things I look back in my coaching career that, you know, maybe that, that was undid. It was my undoing in some ways, that whole side of me. I really have a very soft side and, and very empathetic to people. And, and sometimes, you know, in certain professions, <laughs> you got to put that aside and bring the hammer down. <laughs> I brought the hammer too much. I hit the hammer too many times. Yes, you did. You <laughs> you bring the hammer down. But that's you know we all have to. We can't deny who we are. That's what the other thing I've learned is, you know, you can't fight against who you are too much, or you come across as inauthentic and not believable to people. People discover quickly who you are. So you know you have to in your own comfort zone on on those kinds of things. You know, I think the other thing, though, you being a, an alum from Delaware and the fact our new president is a Delaware alum and that your brother, uh, the mayor of, of Wilmington, has a, a close connection. And so this whole Biden movement and your family's connection to it is pretty incredible in terms of seeing how this has risen and, and taken shape. Our family is incredibly uh, proud of the president, and our connection with him goes way back. Mike went to uh, University of Delaware with Joe, Joe's two years senior to him, but 
you know, Joe, the other thing we're proud of is you know, Mike and I are very involved at University of Delaware football. We owe you for coming back and helping us with some of our, our searches, but we have really made tremendous progress at the university. We just built a hundred million dollar facility and Joe Biden is, he's our guy. I mean, he is our most famous alum and he played ball at, at Delaware. And so there's a real tie in, but Mike uh, goes back, uh, knows uh, the family very well has. And the fact that my brother wound up in politics, Mike was on the Newcastle County Council years back. That's the same Newcastle County that Joe is on. He sat on the same seat that Joe had. And because of Mike's involvement in Wilmington Post, our largest city, uh, he has been around the president. Uh, you know, when the president left to go back to D.C., he had a big send off. And my brother came off of triple bypass surgery and went down to see him off. And it was very touching for our family because uh, he went over to talk to Mike, but he singled Mike out in his farewell speech to everybody saying how good it was to see Mike, the mayor, up on his feet after his uh, heart surgery. So yeah, there's a long connection. Uh, my wife went to school with Joe's bro brother, uh, Jimmy, actually dated Jimmy for two years uh, and used to babysit the boys when Nelia, Joe's first wife, uh, was tragically killed. Delaware, Jed, is a tiny state. And if you ask anybody in the state, they'll tell you they're best friends with Joe Biden. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, our families have been kind of linked for a long time and immensely proud of them. The only problem I have is Sharon and I retired to this tiny community of Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, uh, on the shore down here in, in Delaware. And, and the Bidens bought a home here. So now when they come in to town, town the arteries of the city just stop you know because he's got this entourage it's like a 16 van cavalcade that goes around when he arrives in town but it's worth it it's it's worth it we're kind of now the kenny bunkport of uh of the country vacation capital for the president well joe always been fun i consider you a dear friend and you know, the things we've been through together and watching the journey that we've taken and the success you've had, just really proud. I mean, we, we talked the other day about some of these individuals that we grew up with. You may want to share some of their names and what they've done, because there's some incredible people that uh, came out of Valesburg. Our, and, our neighborhood was, was rich with so many phenomenal people. I mean, you know Jimmy Delaney well. Jim comes to mind because he, you know, he did extraordinary things that mission as, as the commissioner of the Big Ten. He's really an extraordinary person. He came from our collection of guys. Joe Abrazé, who was, I guess, my best friend since I was 11, went on to be one of the biggest executives in, in a TV executive, ad executive, uh, and uh, has been phenomenally successful. So across the board, so many of the people we grew up with, again, I, I attribute it to that kind of background that we all came from where you know you weren't going to get anything the easy way you know you're on the streets and when you're on the streets you got to acquire some street smarts and how to survive and i think those basic skills you know serve us well i mean look where you've gone in your career and all of us are from the very same little melting pot where a sacred heart this large church on sanford in south orange was it was kind of the the very center of our community where we all we all went and part of what 
built us, all of those things, the people, the institutions like the churches, the schools, all those things gave us a great foundation. I think that's why a lot of really talented people came out of Balesburg. Nothing like 1015 Mass. 1015 Mass. <laughs> if you remember 1015 Mass, we got our religious devotion done, but we also got to see all the pretty girls in Balesburg from the balcony. <laughs> Absolutely. That was, uh, that was the key. That was the key in going. So that was the key. And then from there to Sturgis Candy Store afterwards <laughs> to hang out on the corner with the guys. It was great memories. Well, listen, I appreciate you sharing the stories and the successes you've had. Uh, it's been incredible. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Jed. I really enjoyed it.